right, guys. I'll see you guys later. Bye. You didn't catch that. That was uh, Cecil and Tracy Ramos and their boys. They are missionaries that Res Church sponsors uh, financially through prayer and by sending teams out in Thailand. And uh, today's going to be a little bit different. Uh, we're actually going to spend some time not only looking scripturally at what it looks like to multiply globally, but we're going to actually look at some various testimonials of the impact of that multiplication on people both uh, locally and globally. Uh, my name is Pastor Daniel, and I'm one of the executive pastors here at Resurrection Church. Welcome if you're joining us this morning as we open the Bible and proclaim God's Word. I noticed they started running the timer when Vance got up here, so uh, since they're cheating me out of time, I'm just going to assume there's no clock, and we're just going to go until the Spirit stops speaking, and you know, if we got to cater lunch in, we'll do that. Uh, <clears throat> We're in week three of a series called The Mission of Multiplication, and we're looking at the call of the local church and the call to the believer to multiply. So two weeks ago, we looked at what the Bible would tell us about multiplying personally, what it looks like for the gospel, for this knowledge of God to begin to soak into us and change us. And so we've been really looking at this word, this Greek word called epinosis, this idea that there is a knowledge of God that moves from head to heart, and as it does so, it changes us. And last week, we looked at what happens when we individually do that, but do that together as we come to, into this corporate body that the Bible would call a church. And the impact of that transformation process when we do life together, when we pursue God together, how we impact one another, how we can disciple one another and hold one another accountable and encourage one another, and why the church has always been structured around this idea of pursuing God together and how that impacts other people. This week, today, we're going to be looking at the impact of that same process, except not simply inside the church body of our local body, but globally. 
And so uh, what we're going to do today, let me give you a couple things that I want to get done, and we'll see if we get there by the end of this. The first is I want to talk about this uh, command. So we, we, we desire to multiply the gospel globally because it was a command, first of all. So we look at Jesus' great commission to his disciples, and he says, you're to go into all the earth and share the gospel. You're to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and you're to teach them all that... I've taught you. And so it's our job just according to Jesus to go and to do this and to spread the gospel. But it's more than that. And we're going to see that today. And I want to make sure we get there by the end of the service today. There is an additional call that goes beyond simply a command from Jesus. And that is that in the life of the believer, there should be a growing urgency to share the gospel and to see it multiply globally. That urgency is something that should be uh, bubbling up inside you as you pursue the Lord. He matures you and transforms you. You will have greater and greater and greater and greater urgency to see the gospel go forth and to change lives and to change families and to change generations until the day they put you in the ground. Amen? If that's not occurring, we should be asking some hard questions of ourselves because we see that occur in the Bible. We're going to open up those stories today and we're going to look at some of those. But, but we see that the natural progression of knowing God more and more intimately leads to a greater and greater urgency to see the gospel shared with others. Now, why is that? It's not because when other people believe the way we believe that we think we're validated and we're right. That would be a a sociological system or a political system. It's not that at all. As we really look at the words in the Bible of people that had an urgency to see the gospel go forth, what you see is it is more like someone who realizes they have a cure to cancer and they desire every single person in the world now and in the future to never die from cancer again. Amen? And that is at the root of the gospel, that there is this death sentence because of sin. There is this life that leads to nothing. As Solomon would say, it's all vanity. And yet here comes Jesus to make a way where there was no way, to chase us when no one else would. And and there will be an urgency that grows in us as we mature and, and the gospel seeps into our bones to see other people saved and to know God and to be refreshed and to be redeemed. Amen? So it is not simply a command. It also should be a desire that grows in its urgency. Now, uh, today we're, we're going to look at the instruction around what it looks like to multiply globally. We're going to look at what Paul would be telling the New Testament churches so that we can glean from that what we should be doing when it comes to multiplying glo- globally. But we're also going to do something uh, a little bit different. We're going to play videos throughout this service of testimonies from people who are or have been impacted by the work of our church over the course of the last few years because I want you to hear from them. And I want you to hear from them for a couple reasons. One, because in the New Testament uh, church, oftentimes they would ask believers in the assembly to just stand up and have a testimony and talk about encouraging things that God was doing. And again, give glory to God through the work that we see him doing in the hearts of people. But I also want you to be encouraged by what these men and women will say in these testimonies today, because I believe that as I've talked to individuals about the last particularly 18 months, that most of us would look at the last year, year and a half in a fairly negative light. Amen? Most people aren't looking back and going, 2020, banner year. Man, can't wait for another one of those. 
Most people look at the last 18 months or so, and, and, and if, if, if you know, an average day is sort of net neutral, we look at it on the negative side of this. And so we, 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 we talk about the last 18 months like, well, I survived it, or at least we made it here, or at least the losses weren't too bad. And, and what I want you to understand about how self-centered that view is that you and I might have of the last 18 months is wait until you hear from people who have been impacted by the gospel in that time, they don't see it the same way. Because God has still been at work and COVID wasn't bigger than God. All right. And then lastly, we're going to end on a call to action today. We're going to give you an opportunity publicly to come forward, to commit your life to the Lord, call him Lord in your life, and follow up in believer's baptism. We have filled up the baptismal, and I'm told it's not frigid, so you're in luck. We're going to give you an opportunity to recommit your life with a renewed energy and a refreshed spirit to the work of God in your life and those around you. We're going to give you an opportunity to commit to be involved in the work here at Resurrection Church, which means that you would wake up daily and come weekly with an expectant heart to see the spirit stir us and do miraculous things in our midst for men and women to be saved who are living impossible lives far from God. We're going to give you an opportunity to commit to be involved in our community and our discipleship and in the work here at the church and in our group launch that's coming in two weeks because what we do here matters not simply to us, it matters to God and it absolutely matters to others who are being impacted and have been impacted even in the course of the last 18 months. For just a minute, I want you to listen to this uh, video. This is uh, a good friend of mine, Pastor Chris Davis, who was at our church for about four years and then has left and uh, moved to Baltimore to try to revitalize a small church just outside of uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Here you go. How's it going there, Resurrection Church family? My name is Pastor Chris Davis. I used to be one of the pastors there at Res Church for a couple of years. I was asked to do a video and uh, answer the question of how did the community and discipleship of Resurrection Church impact my walk and or ministry? I would say it impacted it significantly. Uh, the, 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 the friendships developed there, the growth both as a, a believer and as a leader uh, took place there through uh, trials, through challenges, uh, through community, through serving, um, yeah, camaraderie, uh, yeah, some great, great memories, great moments, definitely was worth the time, uh, worth saying yes, um, and, and let that, let that encourage you, uh, there is no, no such thing as wasted time in God's economy when we, when we surrender it to him and the things that he desires for us to do, so, hey, jump into those groups, uh, jump on a team and serve, you know, um, and and don't be afraid to fellowship with one another during the worship services, stretch one another to w discuss what you learned and things like that. Those were ways in which I personally uh, grew and developed again as a believer and as a pastor. Take care. I love Chris. Open your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be there today. We're going to look at three things that uh, we need to do, we're called to do, to multiply 
globally. Now, those three things, I'll just give them to you if you're writing in your notes here. We're going to look at what we must give, both as individuals and as a church, if we're going to multiply globally. We're going to look at how we go about doing that. So what we must give, how we do that, and then what we receive when we do. So what we must give, how we do that, and what we will receive when we do. Of the 13 books that the Apostle Paul wrote in the first century to these uh, churches and pastors uh, around the Mediterranean area, he continually asked churches to participate in the work of multiplying the gospel in these three ways. Uh, We won't have enough time today to survey all of those different letters to all of those churches to look at the consistent themes of what he asked for, but I'll just tell you, and I'll put some references up here on the screen, and you can write these down, and we'll we'll post them online later. What you're going to see the Apostle Paul ask for over and over and over again is three primary things. He's going to ask churches for prayer. He's going to ask churches for people, and he's going to ask churches for paper, and I mean money, but it has to start with a P because I'm Southern Baptist. Uh, (laughs) Prayer, people, and paper. Prayer, people, and paper. And uh, if you're looking for those prayer, uh, you'll see probably at the end or near the end of every letter he has, he asks diligently for prayer in both his mission trips and for uh, churches as the gospel goes forth, particularly Romans 15, 30 through 32 and Ephesians 6, 16 through 20, you'll see uh, a, a great desire for the prayer of the saints for people. He asked for uh, discipled uh, or, or, or mature disciples to be sent forth. And you'll see that in 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 13 and in 3 John 1, 5 through 8. Again, we'll post these. And uh, lastly, money for financial support in Philippians 4, 14 through 17, and in our passage today, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 8. So you will see him ask for us, you and I, to be uh, earnest in our emotional and spiritual investment in the gospel going forth in other places, that we would care enough to spend time in prayer, in thought for our brothers and sisters who are doing kingdom work outside of the area in which we may, may not see them or hear from them very often. Secondly, you'll see him asked to send mature disciples. And, and let's be honest, we cannot send what we do not have. So it is the job of the church to continue to equip you for the works of service so that as you're discipled in the context of the local church, we actually have mature disciples to be sent out. If we're not discipling, there is an impact because we have nothing to send. So our discipleship matters to us and to others. And, and for just a moment, Christian, if you've been coming to church for a long time and if you were doing a little self-inventory and if you were being honest with yourself and saying, I don't know that I've, I've really matured a great deal in the depth of my faith or in my urgency and love for God, I would just remind you that that lack of development, that lack of discipleship, that lack of maturation in your life impacts more than just you. It impacts everyone around you who would be being impacted by the gospel if you had been growing in your love and your urgency in your hypnosis for God. It matters. We largely look at our own discipleship and pursuit usually from a very self-centered perspective. I look at it from my perspective, how am I doing with God, but you should understand that there is a ripple effect 
from your pursuit or lack thereof of God. And lastly, he asked for support with financial resources. Uh, Particularly, you see him ask for financial resources for impoverished areas, for poor areas, as he continues to do gospel work in other places, in other cities, in other provinces around the New Testament. And and we take that seriously here. Uh, One of the things that we do as a church is we set aside 15% of the tithes and the offerings that come into this church specifically for work in planting churches and missionaries and mission trips and mission partners and evangelistic work around the globe. We have for uh, many years, uh, as they got started, been praying for, coaching, and financially sponsoring and praying for a church that was planted in San Jose a couple years ago. In fact, they're so self-sufficient now that we actually don't need to financially support them because they are a healthy, growing, vibrant church in San Jose. And that is a pastor named Pastor Daniel Atondo. And for a moment, I'd like you to just hear the joy in his voice, the appreciation in his voice for the work that this church has done for his church for four years now. Here you go. How's it going, Resurrection Church? This is Pastor Daniel here from Eden Church in Silicon Valley. I wanted to just take a moment to say thank you for all the generosity that you have shown us over here over the years. You guys have been part of our story since the very beginning, and it has meant so much to what God is doing through our people in this community. I love that Resurrection Church is not a church just for their city, but they're really about spreading the gospel all over the world and in areas like Silicon Valley. Over the last few years, we've seen hundreds of people make decisions to begin following Jesus. We've seen 50 people go forward with believers baptism. And uh, we are so grateful for all that God is doing. And so much of where we are today is a result of all the churches like yours that have invested in us since the very beginning. And so I just wanted to say thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for being about the kingdom and the church. Uh, even uh, beyond the walls of your own community. It means so much, and you are making an eternal impact all over the world. Amen. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'll give you some context. The Apostle Paul has uh, written a pretty stern letter in 1 Corinthians to correct a number of issues with the church in Corinth. Uh, the situation is a little bit Hence, as he pens this next letter, we're in chapter 8 now, and he's going to do something that every American preacher would tell you that if he's on thin ice, he would probably never do. But he's Paul. So we love him because he's very bold. So let's read this. Here's what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So he's pointing to other churches, not the church in Corinth. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also 
is genuine. Paul has written a letter of rebuke to the church in Corinth. The mood has changed. It's gotten a little bit tense. People have risen up in the areas around Corinth to disagree with Paul's teaching and to instruct the church to actually redistribute and, and redirect funds that they've been collecting for, the, uh, for Jerusalem, for those that are impoverished and going through famine in Jerusalem, to take that money and use it for other things, primarily to pay them with. And Paul is, uh, has this rocky relationship, and so instead of uh, being uh, shy about moving into this conversation about money, the thing that all of us would say is probably the most, one of the most sensitive subjects to talk about in church. Instead, he doubles down on this conversation. See, why would he take this risk? In, in the suburban American church, I think we've gotten this, this backwards, this idea that we should, as much as possible, cover up conversations about money because it might make people feel uncomfortable. We, we struggle, oftentimes I struggle as a pastor because in America this has been abused many times and, and your trust has been abused as someone who believes in Jesus and is led astray by teachers. And, and you have plenty of examples of those on television from Joel Osteen to Creflo Dollar that will tell you all about how your money will get them something. And so because of that, uh, we spend a great deal of time either avoiding the subject or trying to make certain that you know that uh, we're not TBN or a telethon trying to get your money to fund another private jet. So much so that in American church, I believe that we've probably overcorrected. And, and if I'm being honest, I think most of American pastors have gotten very cowardly when it comes to speaking about giving. And in doing so, we've let you down. I've let you down because I've failed to preach the text to you in which it's not avoided. I failed to push into what is a very tough space because I've been worried about hurting your feelings or about not wanting you to think that this was about money or getting money from you or that you might feel uncomfortable and oh boy, we wouldn't want anyone to come to church and feel uncomfortable. But Paul's going to walk right into this in this letter, and he's going to walk into a tough situation, and he's going to ask a church that has some mixed feelings about him to give to a ministry that they can't even see because it's a thousand miles away. It's bold, it's brash, it's spirit-led, it's God-ordained, it's pastoral encouragement and admonishment at the same time, and if I'm really honest, it's breathtakingly holy. We want you to know, brothers, in Corinth, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, and we don't know what their affliction was, we don't know if there was also a famine or a flood in the churches in Macedonia, but in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
Their abundance of joy combined with their extreme poverty equals generosity. That's probably not the formula that you and I would have written for generosity. What does it take to be generous? The Bible says apparently an abundance of joy and extreme poverty. You're like, well, I've got one. Why? Why would that lead to generosity? Because it's only generous if it actually impacts you. It's only generous if it really costs you something, if it would impact your way of life, it would change how you make decisions, then it's generous. If you're given right off the top and, and the amount that you would give, whether it's your time or your money or your attention or your prayer, that the amount that you would give would have almost no impact on how you would live your life, it's not actually really generous. It's surplus. It's budget dust. Tim Keller uh, has preached a lot on greed because he says, and he's, he's in New York City, he said, greed is the sneakiest sin that we deal with. It's the sneakiest sin because not one of us thinks we're greedy. If we took a survey and we kind of listed the things that you struggle with and we listed greed on there, I could send out a thousand surveys and nobody's checking the greed box because we all think it's not affecting us, which is probably the first flag that it's affecting us. Tim says, nobody ever thinks they're greedy. Greed is always someone else that we know. Someone that has more than us or lives more extravagantly or spends more or has a bigger house or so on. In fact, Tim Keller says that in all of his years that he's been a minister, no one has ever come into his office to confess of the sin of greed. Confess of everything else, but not greed. Because greed is the sneakiest of all sins. But through an abundance of joy and extreme poverty, we see generosity from the churches of Macedonia. Verse 3, 4, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, of their own choice, begging us earnestly for the favor, the privilege of taking part in the relief of the saints. What areas of your life are you so motivated in that you would give above or beyond your means without even being asked? Where you've bought into the impact of your dollars, the impact of your money, the impact of your time to such an extent that you're just looking, begging for an opportunity to give those things away in order to see the impact of them. What are those things? For most of us, there, there aren't many of those things. Maybe it's uh, when you were younger, maybe it was romance. Anyone remember falling in love? Were you just begging for an opportunity to give away money? Date nights, gifts, movie ticket, hey, hey, any possible way, yes? No, none of you here? Listen, I've met some of you and I know your wives put up with you. You were begging. I was begging. Take it, please. There's a meme and there's a guy running with cash in his fist. Have you ever seen this? He's like, take my money, please. Your kids? We just willingly go above and beyond for your children because you love them, Amen. Because it's, it's rare when your kids are young that they somehow generate you money. You notice that? Like the black hole of money? We got to go to the dentist again? One of the, the sage old pastors said, uh, people vote with their butts and their wallets. 
You want to know what someone's really interested in, have them open up their checkbook. You'll know. Where you spend your money says a lot about what you love. In fact, Jesus would say this. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. What examples in your life mirror what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in the churches of Macedonia? What pursuits would you willingly throw money at? What hobbies? Because that desire in you is a reflection of your heart. And listen to me, as the gospel is seeping into us, as it's soaking into our bones, that urgency to just have an opportunity and a privilege to participate in the work of God begins to just grow in us the desire to want to be a part of a move of God. Verse five, and this... This, what the the churches in Macedonia have done in their poverty and in their joy by begging to take part in giving to other churches that aren't even in their area. And this, not as we expected, you couldn't have predicted this, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What motivated them to have this urgency, to, to want to participate in this work? It was God-directed. It was spirit-led. This is not simple uh, obedience to being faithful with God with your finances and trusting him. That's good. That's very good to be obedient to God, to trust God with your finances, to honor him with your money. That is a good thing. But to be so spirit-led that they are literally competing with one another for the chance to participate in the work of God. That is right here what epinosis looks like as we're multiplying personally and it begins to seep out as we do it together and we begin to multiply locally inside of the walls of our church and God begins to soak this into us and change us and transform us and grow an urgency and a desire to see him move to such an extent that we can't handle it if other people don't know about Jesus Christ and therefore it's worth anything, any amount of money, any amount of time, any amount of effort if we just get to participate in spreading the gospel gospel to other people. Amen. When the knowledge of God is just taking over in a transformational process, the spirit will begin to lead us and motivate us and change our urgency to reach others with this same experience. In fact, Romans 12, 10 would put it this way. Love one another in, with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor that the only competition that we would have within these walls is how much better we can serve one another and people to hear the gospel. And this is actually happening. And here's my encouragement to you, church, not only the good work that this church has done for years now as we continue to try to invest in kingdom work all around the globe, but as you see this happening in the pews and in the people next to you and in your small groups and in your family and in the church, as as you see this happening, as you begin to just desire to never miss an opportunity to participate in this work, when this happens, Look out. Look out, Satan. Look out. Good luck stopping a church who is motivated to outdo one another in honor. 
for an opportunity to participate in God's work. Verse six, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Titus is being sent to the church to collect this offering that they've been uh, collecting now for over a year for Jerusalem. But as you excel in everything, You should know something about the church in Corinth, and we, we haven't talked about this, but if you've read about the church of Corinth, not only was the church of uh, Corinth relatively wealthy compared to many of the other New Testament churches, but they were just abounding in works of the Spirit. Uh, when you read 1 Corinthians uh, 1, we often, or 1 Corinthians all the way through the, the gifts of the Spirit, oftentimes we focus on the fact that, that Paul's rebuking them on how they're using or misusing the gifts or have a bad perspective about the gifts. But what we miss is the fact that the gifts of the Spirit in the church in Corinth are abundant. They are overflowing in teaching in prophecy, in speaking in tongues, and the gifts of the Spirit. Like, like this is a church that has just seen the Spirit move. And he's saying, listen, I know you're excelling. We've seen the work of God in your lives. We've seen the transformation in your life. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What is this act of grace? Sacrificial giving generosity to people they're never going to see. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Are you commanded to live generously? Yes, yes. He's not, that's not what I'm not commanding you means. Paul is not mandating that they give to any specific missions organization at all. In fact, he's trying to be really clear that it's not a command. His reason for pushing them towards this generosity is actually because of the impact this generosity will have on their own epinosis, their own growth, their own knowledge of God. It's going to impact them. And he's, Paul's an apostle, he's a disciple, he is tracking this maturation process in them and in their church, and he's looking at how the gospel has been changing their church, and he's, he's walking through this, and he's saying, look it, I see that these things are happening, I see that they're growing in you, I see these spiritual gifts, but now let these things bubble up to such an extent that it's not simply impacting the people in the pews next to you, but it's now impacting people that you'll never see working from brotherly affection into agape love, sacrificial love. Listen to how uh, Paul will talk to the church in Philippi about giving in chapter four, verses 14 through 17. He'll say, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not, listen to this, not that I seek the gift, that's the money, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Radical generosity is a sign, it's a fruit 
of leading this spirit-led life. It's a spirit-led people who are metabolizing the gospel, who are growing in their knowledge of God and who are becoming more sensitive to the work of the spirit so that when the spirit moves, when the spirit says, go here, serve here, help them, give here, the church doesn't ask, well, let's um, stop for a minute and do a pluses and minuses to see if that will actually tally up. We just go. Amen? So, so much of the work of the Spirit in the believer's life is not logical, amen? If you're listening to God as he asks you to be sacrificial and to serve others, it does not seem logical. It's illogical. It's otherworldly. We're asked to give of our prayers and attention to other churches. We're asked to give of our people to send people out to the mission field like we see in Acts 13. And we're asked to give of our money. And what we get back is not simply um, a good feeling. What we get back is growth as we continue to sink into the gospel and serving other people. And what we get back is we get back the encouraging words of how God has taken what little we can give and he's multiplied it for his kingdom use and we get to hear about that and be encouraged here in Bakersfield, California from all around the world. That's why we watch the testimonies. That's why even in the New Testament they would write letters back to talk about how much Kingdom impact was coming from the work and the prayers and the people that they would send to be encouraged. And it's only the gospel that does this. Only a God that was radically generous to his enemies and invades our dead souls and brings us to life and begins to transform us does this. Because people don't logically live this way. That's why it was so strange and so odd in the New Testament that they didn't know what to call Christians. Why would they live this way? We must give of uh, people, prayers, and paper. We do that by living spirit-led lives in which we grow in an urgency to see the gospel impact people, not simply around us, but even in places that we'll never see. And as we do, we'll receive back not simply the fruit of that work in our lives, but also the encouragement as we begin to hear about the kingdom impact that's taking place all around us, far from us. And that's why as believers, we desire to multiply globally, not simply because of the command of the Great Commission, but because it is a sign that we are continuing to grow in the gospel, that our urgency and desire to see others know God grows. Now, I want to call you to action today. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to these last three weeks as we've looked at the gospel and how it impacts us internally, how the gospel impacts us here as a church and how the gospel impacts us all across the world as we attempt to make an impact for the kingdom. If you've been listening to these stories from the Bible over the course of the last few weeks and wondering, man, I, that all seems fairly foreign to me. I want to give you an opportunity today to call Jesus your Lord 
to put your life in his hands. The Bible would say that that is as simple of a process as declaring with your mouth that he is Lord of your life and believing it in your heart. Now, that's not believing that he existed. That's believing that he's Lord. And there's a difference. Because even the demons believed that Jesus was a real person. Even, believe, even the demons believed that he was the son of God. In fact, they knew he was. But he wasn't Lord of their life. If God is saving you, your responsibility is to believe that he's Lord and he's died for you, he's risen again, and he wants to lead you to newness of life and declare it with your mouth. And if you're ready to do that today, we'd like to talk to you. We're going to be down at the altar here in just a second. We'd love to have a conversation for what that looks like. If you're online and you've been hearing these messages and realizing that God is chasing you, he's wooing you, he's attracting you, he's pulling you to him, we want to talk to you. And there are people online that would love to pray with you and talk about what next steps look like after you give your life to the Lord what it looks like to live a life under God's lordship, not running from him. If you've done that or you're doing that today and you're here, we would like to baptize you. The Bible would say that the very next step after you declare that he's the Lord of your life is to get dunked. It is a symbolic act where we get to go public with who's the Lord of our life. We get to declare to everyone around us in public that we have given our life over to the Lordship of the Lord, that he's saved us, not of our own works, but of his. And we're gonna do that today. And we even have towels and clothes for you. So you didn't come prepared necessarily today to get wet, and that's all right. The Lord was prepared for you, and we stocked up on towels. Maybe as you've listened to what the Bible has to say about the gospel over the course of the last three weeks, you've come to a realization that you need a renewed commitment to the things of God. Maybe you need a renewed commitment in your marriage. Maybe you need a renewed commitment to stewarding and parenting your children in a way that would honor God. Maybe you need a renewed commitment in the work of kingdom work and not your own work. But whatever that renewed commitment is, you've come to a realization that you need to reach a turning point in which you say, I'll pick up my cross every day, Lord, and I'll die to you. I'll die to myself. I'll follow you every single day. And we're going to give you an opportunity in just a moment as we get people ready for baptism for you to come up to the altar and just give that to the Lord. Declare that you're going to make a new commitment to him and want to be renewed and refreshed by his spirit. And maybe you simply want to renew your commitment to the work here at Resurrection Church. A few weeks ago, we, had, we talked about the story of crossing the Jordan River. You may not have all the answers and you may not know how you're gonna get across the river, but you trust God and it starts with putting your feet in the water. And I'll tell you this, if you're ready to recommit to the work of the Spirit in this church, it's going to require an expectant heart. You have to come expectant that God is going to move in miraculous ways and do miraculous things far beyond what we would logically anticipate because that's how God works. But if you desire to see that, that men and women far from God will come to God, we would love to talk to you about ways to get involved in this church and in this work. So we're going to... Take a minute as uh, you approach 
the altar, give you a chance to recommit or to come and talk to us about giving your life to Christ. Those that are ready for baptism are going to go get ready and get prepped. If you are ready to be baptized, get up here. We got to make sure we know your shirt size. And then when, uh, once we're done, we're going to watch a couple videos in just a second. You come as the Lord leads you. Hello, my name is Bob Wilson. I am the president of Pace Center Global Outreach and one of the directors for the International School Project. And I want to thank the Resurrection Church for your partnership and impact around the world as we reach out to teachers to reach students for Christ and to help them become productive citizens within their own countries. Uh, many of you have even participated with us on trips, and the volunteers from the Resurrection Church have been a great asset to everything we're trying to do to minister to teachers. Uh, you know, for 30 years we've been doing this and nearly 200,000 teachers have been reached and exposed to the gospel who in turn are exposing students to the gospel and going forward with reaching millions of students throughout the years. We are right now in the middle of a conference in Ecuador. And while we can't be there in person, we are able to, through technology, be able to reach the teachers still and impact them. We have 100 teachers in Ecuador, thanks to the help of Mark and Sherry Rutowski, whom you're very familiar with there in your church, and organizing and getting these teachers online to be able to participate in this conference. So we're continuing to move forward, and we look forward to the day when we can again be involved with them personally, one-on-one. -on -one. So thank you all who have traveled with us. Thank you all who have contributed to, and thank you all particularly for having a vision to reach the world for Christ. Thank you for your partnership, and we look forward in the coming days to see what God is going to do, hopefully opening up our world once again to being able to go in person. God bless you, and thank you. Hi, Resurrection Church. My name is Nathan Mayer. I just want to talk to you about why I'm so grateful for Resurrection Church. Have you ever thought about what life was like before you put your faith in Jesus and just been kind of shocked, kind of shocked at how different things are? That's really the story of my time at Resurrection Church. I first came to Res about seven years ago, right after I put my faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. The time that I spent at Resurrection Church was really the foundation of my faith in Jesus Christ. And so as I walked with seasoned men and women who had been walking with Jesus for a long time, I learned what it meant to serve others, what it meant to love others, how to love God with a sincere heart. I found victory over lust, over pride and arrogance, and victory uh, to, to experience this abiding joy and peace and love and hope and purpose that I can't even shake anymore if I tried. I naturally tend towards this academic Christianity where I love to think about big ideas and I don't always have a lot of fruit on the branches. And so I'm so grateful to be at a church that reminds me of the main things, the important things, helps me to stay focused and keeps my eyes set, fixed on Jesus Christ. I'm so grateful to get to serve Resurrection Church, to build her up, to help shepherd her, and to do the work of ministry alongside you, my, my brothers and sisters, and this family that we call Res. Father God, thank you for your people. Uh, thank you that your son came to save us when we were still your enemies. God, uh, multiply the gospel in us 
and through us and transform us, God, to be more like you. Uh, Grow in us a desire and an urgency to see your work done all around us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Love you guys.